our final session today, um, well, it kind of brings everything together because so far today we've heard from, um, from psychologists, from psychiatrists, from theologians. I guess what we haven't heard from so far is a, is a real-life church leader. And um, that's what we're going to do uh, now because our final, final speaker this afternoon is, um, is Will van der Hart. Now, Will, again, is a, an old friend uh, we've known for, for many years. Um, he's a husband and father, uh, but he also leads a church. He's the vicar of St. Peter's Harrow up in North London, and he's also one of the directors of Mind and Soul as well. And Will, for a number of years, has had a real passion to see people set free from uh, mental health problems and also to see uh, churches equipped to do that very thing. So um, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Will to you. So please do give a warm welcome to Will van der Hart. Thanks. Thanks, Graham. Great. Well, hi, everyone. It's brilliant to have you here at the final session of the day. I was a bit worried about being the final session of the day because you know, chairs start thinning out, people start getting the early tube home, and I'm, I'm feeling a bit nervous and uh, a bit unappreciated. But it's okay. I'm here now. I've, uh, I, I'm sort of just, just so privileged to stand uh, looking at you all and thinking, I love the church. Don't you love the church? I think the church is the place of hope. For this and every generation. And um, I love what I've heard today. I love the fact that we've seen an, an integration of Christians, of, of psychiatrists, and of psychologists, and counselors, of just pastoral carers. And I, I guess that you're here today because you want to see people changed and move forward in their relationship with Jesus. And that's what's on my heart, and I know that's what's on everyone's heart on the team. So I want to start off by saying, I love the church, and I hope you love it too. And um, sometimes, you know, when we do conferences like this and we start talking about, about how we can do things better, we can forget what we've got. But we've got something so special because we've got the thing that the King of Kings left with us in preparation for the time when he'd come again and do that rebuilding the end time. So I want to say, praise God that you're part of his church. And if you're not part of his church today, I want to say get involved because if there's one place where I know that your emotional and mental health needs will be met, even if it's in a slightly broken way, it's in the church as well as uh, in, in the office of the psychiatrist and, and in the clinician's practice. It's, it's holistic. We're there too. So let's not put one thing over another. Let's say that Jesus is in all and is all. Let's love the church that we're part of Let's give thanks that we're in a community that offers transformation and offers real relationship. Because the thing that hurts me emotionally and mentally is isolation. It's feeling like I'm other. I'm not a brother. But in the church, no matter how clunky and weird I am, there are people around me who love me and make me feel at home, make me feel real and human. I want to thank God for the church, and I want to thank God for this church. Today's been about theology and the theology of tensions. So I'm, I'm putting it straight out there and saying I love the church. There's a balance to what we can sometimes find frustrating. I haven't come up to kind of balance everyone out by being super enthusiastic about the church. I've come up here to say it's an amazing community. But if we were going to give it a school report, on mental and emotional health, we could say, could do better. 
So I want to thank God for what we've got, but also build more into what we have and say, this process of transformation for our community can go on. It can develop. Today's been the theology of tensions. Theology that doesn't attempt to resolve, but instead preserve the fine balance upon which the mantle of Christian orthodoxy lays strewn. It's the existence of couplets of apparently opposing forces in that place that we see the mystery of God revealed. Grace and law, death and life, freedom and slavery, God and man. As Luther said, if it isn't a paradox, then it probably isn't God. Our faith is marked out as being authentic by the very nature of these tensions. Their existence demonstrates a wisdom far beyond the reach of any mortal soul. And yet in the tension between sick and well, particularly in the area of mental health, the church has sometimes attempted to unravel the tension and deny the ongoing presence of pain. Friends, I want to say if we love the church, let's stay in the tension. Let's stay in the place of the unresolved. This talk is about messy church. It's a church that God created, that Jesus sustains by his spirit. It's a place of tension. In a futile attempt to lay blame for mental distress, sufferers of mental illness in this country prior to the 17th century were often burned as witches or shackled of evidence of demonic possession. And whilst we continue to see evidence of the spiritual world at work in illness, whether that be in the body or the mind, this tension too must be preserved in the balance of physiological and psychological influences. And this is me talking as a charismatic church leader. Yes, we do powerful prayer ministry. Yes, we see people healed. But where mental and emotional issues are healed... There's often a walking out of that healing that takes place. And one of the things that we've noticed as a team as we've, as we've tread the boards in churches around the country is to say, let's stay in the tension. Let's trust in the instantaneous healing of Jesus Christ. Let's also see things in context. In the same way that flu has physical and emotional aspects and dimensions so does depression. So do other mental health issues. We've got to stay in the tension, friends, and say, yes, let's see the whole person, not just the illness. It's been synchronistic that the champions of the church have been the ones to reassert these fundamental tensions. It's been those who've walked the boards of orthodoxy, not simplicity, who've been the ones who've raised a standard for tolerable uncertainty. And oh, if there's one thing we all hate in church, it's uncertainty. Another sermon unraveling the complexities of another complex passage of Scripture. Because we can't cope with mystery and uncertainty in the church. No, we can't. Who's on the flower rotor this week? It looks ambiguous. <laughs> we have to deal with our problem. We have to realistically comprehend that there's a splinter of doubt without which there isn't faith. Faith isn't built on certainty. Faith is built on not being 100% sure. Do we have faith in God? 
then we need to know that doubt is a credible part of our existence. We need to know that we can't be sure of everything, but we can trust in him who ordained everything. Simplicity doesn't always do much for our emotional health. Puritan clergyman Cotton Mather, funny name I know, but in the 1720s, he broke with superstition to advance physical explanations of mental illness. And indeed, what I see in history is uh, psychology and psychiatry rooted deep within the tenets of our faith. Not some great bolt-on, not some added extra, but actually at the beginning of time. When God and Adam walked hand in hand in the garden, there was a picture of integrative emotional wellness. Knowing and being known. Core identity revealed. And and then when mental illness broke into the world and Adam created a a, a new uh, mask for himself, he wove one uh, out of fig leaves and him and Eve hid We see the journey of uh, unmasking begin as God overcomes sin on the cross and then brings a revelation of healing and wholeness as we see him again face to face. I see the roots of all that we've shared today in the nature of God and in the person of Jesus. And I want to say In the church, we're getting some things right. Because if we're seeking to make Jesus known to this generation, and if we are incorporating, inviting, and participating together in faith, whatever our struggles, we're doing something incredible. I believe that every encounter with Jesus is an encounter of healing. Every encounter. It might not be the healing that we're hoping for, But every encounter points to healing. It's been the burden of Christian leaders to carry within their own minds the suffering of emotional distress. And yet in history, without any concrete frame of reference, John Bunyan, Martin Luther, William Cooper, to name but a a few. And if you know my story of uh, my dealings with anxiety and depression following the London bombings, you'll know that I too am a fellow struggler. I see God in this present with us. The tension between their trust and God's healing power, but the ongoing realities of mental anguish, that's where the tension is found. That's where the wrestling is done. Bishop John Moore preached an insightful sermon on this tension in 1692 called On Religious Melancholy. Being plagued by the dread of punishments which God has threatened to inflict on unrelenting sinners, despite that they have the sincere love of God. They used to do very long sermon titles in the 1690s. There's something of the tension in this too, isn't there? Can you see it? The tension of the unresolved in a 300-year-old sermon. Religion and melancholy. A fear of the anger and the wrath of God despite a security in the love of God. I'm moved to read the lengths to which sufferers of depression in the church sought reassurance of their salvation. 
rather than understanding how to address uh, the root cause of their uncertainty. When I think today of the incredible blessing that we have in the comprehension of mental distress, in medical advancement, and in frontline therapies, it seems a travesty that we might not engage in these things for the spiritual benefits of those in our care. And that's where we, as leaders, have a responsibility in the church to become more psychologically aware, to be able to understand what therapies and treatments are healthy and good for our people and to understand which ones aren't. We should be taking responsibility for our flock, not leaving them to the dangers of the internet and all those pay now, get well later opportunities that it apparently provides. Equally, it seems a travesty to me that the hope and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ should be eradicated from the place of emotional pain and replaced by those self-same treatments. Because it's got to be both. It's got to be both. In May 1738, Susanna Wesley wrote to her son, John, yes, John Wesley, about a friend who was suffering from depression. And she says of him, the man is not a lunatic, but rather under strong conviction of sin and hath much more need of a spiritual than a bodily physician. But the tension is here too, yet reversed. Perhaps the man in Mrs. Wesley's letter needed to have an assurance of his salvation through the compassionate guidance of a priest. But perhaps too, he needed the care and compassion of his doctor. What is true is that his humanity has not been suspended by his illness, something that we would do well to remember. In our work in mental and emotional health in churches, the Mind and Soul team have come across hundreds of individuals suffering from a whole spectrum of mental and emotional health issues. And indeed, most of us in this room today will be activated into caring through our own encounters with the dark night of the soul or the slough of despair. What unites us in our quest to offer comfort and healing is the comprehension that you are not other, you are brother. In Thessalonians 3.12 it says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow to each other. We need to see the human. We need to see the person that Jesus sees. Today you might have heard them and us. Have you heard it? I hope not. We work hard to eradicate a them and us culture. But it's impossible for someone in their professional capacity not to talk in that way. I hope you understand how that works. That's the nature of being a professional. There's an identification which means that there is a distance, which is obviously helpful for some therapeutic ends. But all of us on the team, everyone who's spoken today, wants to assert this in our core nature, that together we're children of Jesus. We're the children of God. We're standing here as flesh and blood. Shoulder to shoulder with an agenda, an agenda of compassion. 
not a gender of scapegoating and separation and sending out in, into the wilderness. Messy church is a place where boundaries and classifications are unclear. Where the unwell in the body or the mind don't get a label to wear that distinguishes their personhood from the well and the free. Messy church is reluctant to pick apart the causes of distress as a way of laying blame or exonerating faith from the mystery of suffering. And this too is a tension. Mike Lloyd was saying to me just in the break that he was going away to write on the problem of evil. I was thinking, wow, how long have you got for that? Five months, he said. And I really hope that in that five months he doesn't unresolve the problem. Because in a way, I think he will have failed if he does. Can we resolve the problem of suffering? Can we excuse the pain? Can we make sense of it all? Can we redeem the years that the locusts have eaten ourselves? Can we accelerate our healing? Maybe, I don't know. It's a tension. What I do know is that there will be a time, a time of great restoration and celebration in heaven when there will be no more weeping and no more gnashing of teeth. I look forward to that time with you where we'll be celebrating again. But let's not make life simple now to do away with tension, to make it all easy and palatable, a 12-step program so everything is all right and in order. Because in messy church, it's not in order. It's a field. It's a place of being. The key things are the fact that God is present with us and that we are present with each other. As we're well aware, every establishment has an undergirding of implicit rules, be that the NHS or the Christian church. These aren't necessarily the values of the organization, but an unspoken treaty that is subconsciously shared by the majority of the people within the organization. And they're often either impressed upon or impressed by the leadership. And as a church leader, I'm aware of the focus and the forces at work in me that would like to keep disappointment and ambiguity away from the life of my congregation. They're the people I love and the people I care for. If I can just make it simple and easy and understandable, we'll all be all right. And I, I want to be able to say, I'm the vicar. I know the answer. Trust in me. Perhaps they would like to believe that I know the answer. Perhaps they'd like to believe that what I say is 100% on the money. That we're all on a steady trajectory towards betterness. That pain and distress don't permeate the minds of the saints. And that our healing is our birthright as new creations in Christ. Perhaps it's this desire that has pushed sufferers of mental distress underground at times in our fellowships and left them fearful of exposure, ashamed of their medication and unsure of their place of belonging. 
I love the church. But in integration, could we do better? Friends, we're galvanizing a movement here today. I like to say, that sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like the sort of thing you say at a conference. Friends, we're galvanizing a movement of people today. It sounds great. But I wonder if we are. I hope we are. I hope that what we're doing isn't just all kind of getting together and having a nice day and a little group moan and get back out there. And I hope we're doing something together, really creating some kind of groundswell. I, I kind of feel from the applications for this conference that maybe we are. When 800 people sign up two weeks in advance and I get lots of angry emails from people saying, I wanted to go to the Mind and Soul conference and now I can't because it's full. It's a disgrace. <laughs> really sorry, I've got nothing to do with ticket sales. I'm really sorry. I'll try and save you a place. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do together in this tension? I think we're trying to reassert the enveloping ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. One that's not sanitized by comfortability, but one that's raw and real. You know, when I think about the social and demographic changes in this country over the past 20 years, I see us kind of almost peaking in a season of prosperity and hope in the 1980s and 90s. You know, everything is getting better, we're getting richer, we're getting wiser. We're getting more competent and our suits are getting more square cut in the shoulders. But since then, I think people are hungry for integrity. People in our churches, they don't want flash anymore. They want real. We're coming to a time where we're saying everything's not getting better. Everything's not getting easier. Everyone's not getting richer. But maybe people are getting more real. Real with themselves and more real with each other. If we're galvanizing a movement, then that movement must be to envelop more in the love of Christ. In the healing of generations. In the freedom of the kingdom of God. To see people coming alive to the sound of a mobile phone. Sorry. (laughs) When I look at my Saviour's ministry on earth, I see a collision of cultural divisions and divine agendas. Think about this. Jesus heals the paralytic, Mark chapter 2. So in the room, there's loads of really pious people like you, and you're all sitting there, and you're looking really holy and special, and you've got your notebooks out, and you're writing things down, because Jesus... This incredible teacher has appeared on the scene and everyone's talking about him. So you all arrived early. In fact, you signed up online and you appeared at the house with a flat roof and it wasn't very auspicious, not like HTB. And you all crammed in like you've done today and you're all there and he's in the middle and the teaching's amazing. And you're all glowing and thinking, ah, we're galvanizing a movement for the first century. Things have been going down, but now they're getting better. And then, above your head, a thick wedge of kind of uh, lime dust and camel dung and 
various pieces of vegetation from the first century begin shaking and shivering before they descend on your head. I'm thinking they should have chosen a better venue. <laughs> Didn't you book HDB? But then before your eyes, something hideous happens. Something unexpected. The broken and the pale body of a man is lowered on a stretcher through that same hole. This isn't a meeting for the great and the good to be interrupted by this unclean, dirty, smelly outcast. What on earth has his mother or father done to get him into a situation like this? What sins has he committed? How dare you bring him and lay him down in the middle of this congregation of Pharisees and and legal experts and, and religious leaders? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know what this is about? We're galvanizing a movement. This isn't the place for disgust, for the dirty, unresolved nature of unhealing. This is for the great and the good, not for the bad and the broken and the disavowed and the disaffected. We don't want to see them here. Jesus did messy church. Jesus brought those who were the broken and the wounded into the center of the room. He doesn't look at the man coming through the roof and go, oh my goodness, sorry, this conference venue is full. Please, don't try and come through the roof. (laughs) Jesus sees the man who is at his feet in the place of honor and he says to him, son, Don't you love that? Did you think I was going to say, get up and walk? Your sins are forgiven? No. He did that bit later. He says to him, son, you are in the place of honor. Friends, if you're here today because you've got a mental health issue, that's all right. That's okay. That's not the most important thing I'm going to say. What I want to say to you is, Jesus says to you, son, daughter, he sees you, he loves you, just as he saw in the paralyzed man, he saw the paralysis is secondary to the personhood. Is this what what we're doing in our churches? Is this what we're about? Because it would be really easy for you guys to kind of point at me and go, yeah, good, can you come to my church and tell my vicar to do that? But what I want to say to you is, you do it. You are the church. You are the people. I'm not going to break into a song. (laughs) You do it. Because Jesus will speak through you. messy church it's about the identification of you in relationship to God it's a place where your illness is secondary to your personhood friends 
in that we follow Jesus' model of ministry, we must all commit to bring mental health out of the cupboard in our churches, if it's in the cupboard, and it's not in the cupboard in every church. And we must work to reduce the shame and the stigma that face so many individuals. We've also got to remember that the shame and the stigma that might inhibit your church is far lesser than the shame and the stigma that inherit in our world. It's easy to see what's broken in our community. It's harder to see what's broken out there. We are offering a warm welcome. And we're on a journey, and we're not yet there yet. I I believe that. I know that's true, because I lead a church. But build the welcome before you build a bespoke ministry for mental health. Build the welcome. If you've come here today thinking, great, I, I loved... Everyone loved Pablo's uh, seminar. I'm fired up now. I want to make this happen. We need some investment. We need to open a center. We need to employ Tara to come in and do work with our people. We need to get Rob to come down from Scotland once a week. Susanna's going to love that. The thing is this. There's a lot of work to be done. But Jesus invites you to put your hand to what he's given you with the resources that you have available. What resources do you have in your hands right now? You haven't got any. You've got your hands. And what I want to encourage you to do is extend those hands in friendship to people who you know are struggling. Extend them in handshake, in a warm embrace. Because this is mental health treatment designed by the divine. The embrace. You know what I love when I come to HDB? I love this statue, designed and created by a fantastic, wonderful Charlie Mackesy. I'm going to touch it now, which hopefully they haven't got me on film. Oh, they have, quick. I better take my hands off that in case I get in trouble. This is the prodigal son. It's a beautiful, tear-jerking statue. And, and, And we have the father here, and we have the son here. This is mental health in action. This is restoration in our church. Look at the sun. What I love, what Charlie has done to the nth degree of brilliance, is just show the limpness of the sun. The arms that hang down, so weighty and heavy. The inability even to wrap them around the Father. There's no mutuality in this hug. It's one-way traffic. It's the hug of God embracing the brokenness of man. Can you see it? Don't you love it? Because for some of us in our churches, there are folk, there might be folk here, who are exhausted by depression, who are terrified by our anxieties, who are stricken by schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And they are just limp with it. They need to be loved without having to love back. They need to embrace. Be embraced without having to embrace back. 
Church isn't like a dinner party where you go along and then you expect a return invite. Church is about the selfless love of God expressed to us. It's about his ability to wrap us up in his arms of love and say, it's okay to be you here. This is a safe place to be limp. One of the things that hurts me when I reflect on church is that at times we can maintain a dinner party approach to our lives. And I don't want to say anything negative about church because you know I love it. But sometimes we can do the whole, oh, I said hello to Doreen. I've said hello to her three weeks in a row now and she never even smiles at me. She says she's got a problem with depression, but goodness, I think she's just selfish. Have you heard that? Have you felt it? We need to get our house in order in terms of our welcome. We've got to be able to love those who are unable to love us back. They might not be able to love us back for a season, maybe for a long season. But let God love you as you love them. Messy church holds together the tension of the incomplete work of restoration that underpins the theology of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, for a while we are in this tent and we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with life. Now it is God who's made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee, guaranteeing what is to come. We've understood this theology in relationship to our wholeness, our holiness, and our physical healing. Have we applied it to our mental health? Are we going to allow the now and the not yet? Paul's comprehension of the tension between weakness and strength in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 shows that he understood how God's grace and God's power are illuminated in our weakness and in our struggle. A battle for holiness or a struggle for physical healing are manifest places of the radiance of God where we come to the end of ourselves and see the beginning of him and his all-surpassing power. But this is also true in emotional and mental health. You know, friends, one thing I love, I mean, I love describing uh, Charlie's beautiful statue. But the danger of me describing it in that way is to say that if you've got an emotional or mental health issue, you can't contribute to your congregation. That's the danger. I want to say to you, you can. I do. You can. You can be a demonstration of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. If you've got a broken leg, I hope you can still preach. If you've got depression, you might struggle for a while, but I hope you can still say something positive about the Lord. You can still welcome. You can do the things that you can do. If you've got a serious and enduring mental health issue, you can be creative in worship for the Lord, if you can. You've got to do what you can do with what you have. Not imagining that there's some amazing spiritual prototype who comes out of the box and comes to the front fully loaded for ministry and mission. Fully charged up and wholly correct in every way. 
It's in brokenness, friends, that we can truly illuminate the love of God. When we are weak, he is strong. I think about who I could have been sometimes if I didn't sometimes struggle with anxiety and low mood. Think about this kind of arrogant church leader who's on a mission to transform the world. You know, who's trying to do it all on his own. Imagine it. I'm horrified by the vision of it. I'm terrified if I see any glimmer of it. I'm thinking, Lord, when I am weak and I am weak, you are strong. You show me what I'm supposed to be. Don't think because you struggle that you need to be fixed in order to be useful. Don't limit God. Because even in your struggle, God can be more manifest strength to you. Don't limit his ability to do what he wants in and through you. How much does the power and the creativity of God manifest itself during times of mental anguish? Can we not see that those in mental pain can be revelations of God's strength and power? When Elijah lay down under a broom tree in 1 Kings 19, depressed and said, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. Who would know that he would soon go on to defeat the prophets of Baal and become Israel's greatest ever prophet? You know, when we leave a, an empty chair for Elijah, we don't think, oh yeah, Elijah, depressed and suicidal. We think mighty prophet because God uses him in his weakness. And the true prophetic is in the nature of the strength of God, not in the nature and the strength of man. When David in Psalm 143 describes himself as crushed to the ground like those long dead in the pit of life, did he ever stop being the best and most famous and revered and wonderful king of Israel? When we think about David, we think depressed, borderline suicidal, in a pit. Or do we think mighty king of Israel? Do we edit out the tension? I think we might. I think we cognitively edit our minds. That's me slipping in a bit of psychology. Pop psychology. We edit out what we don't like. We edit out what isn't simple. We want to say there's just one clear route. This is how it should be done. That's how they're doing it. That's how I should do it too. The truth is this, that God created us all different. We all struggle in different ways and we all have different pain. But God promises that he can use each and every one of us for his glory and for his purpose. Messy church is about you believing that, but not just you believing that, you activating that belief. In mind and soul, when me and Rob do work, we always say to change something is to change something. It's well and good people doing the mind and soul course, that's great. As long as they understand the concepts, that's fantastic. But if they don't do any of them, then no one's going to change. If we're sitting here today thinking, yeah, messy church, that sounds really good. I should tell my pastor about that. We should get messy church going here. 
Yet we don't do messy church. We don't believe that we're activated to be God's mission and ministry. Then nothing's going to change. The likelihood is that your pastor's struggling in his own way. And he knows that's true. We as the people, we need to activate this. We need to do this ourselves and say, yes, I believe in the creative, authentic power of God in my trials and tribulations. That to whatever level I can be used and glorify him, I can be used and I can glorify him. Is Van Gogh not still the best painter in the world, said by a true Dutchman? Is Churchill not still the best ever Prime Minister of England, said by a true Englishman? Sorry, I've got dual nationality. Are they less good at painting? Are they less good at being Prime Minister because they had mental health problems? Of course not. Their gifting, their ability, their creativity is a demonstration that it all rolls on, friends. These things can eat away at our self-esteem. They can make us believe that we are other, not brother. But the reality is that Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, you still are. I'm embracing you. I'm releasing you for messy church to be my envoy. Messy church is not clean. It's not sanitized. It's not problem free. It's not tension resolved. It's authentically church. Isn't it time that we stopped Obsessing about the illness. And we started seeing the person. Shouldn't we get away from the mechanistic, when we fixed you, then you can be useful? Instead, let's invite the tension between creativity and mental struggle. Messy church is a place where the disempowered of the world are empowered by the Spirit of God to lead the empowered of the world in the service of the Most High God. It's where the faith of the paralyzed outcast educates the wisdom of the religious leaders and the Pharisees of their day. It's where the suffering and the glory are both present. It's the day of the cross and it's the day of the final resurrection. Let me just read to you in closing from one of my great heroes, a sufferer of deep days of depression, William Cooper, the writer of many great hymns. In January 1773, an hour or two after hearing Newton preach that morning, Cooper was walking in the fields around Olney where he was struck by a terrible premonition that the curse of madness was about to fall on him. Struggling to make a declaration of faith in poetic form before his mind was enclosed in the darknesses of depression, he struggled home, picked up his pen, and wrote a hymn that many regard as the literary and spiritual masterpiece. 
God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon a storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain.